HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Meets. I'm your host, Tatsuka Tema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day on the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cook guests. My guest today is Matt Alp, who is a Tokyo-based writer and a localizer of Japanese entertainment products, including video games, toys, and manga. His work has appeared widely in publications, including the New York Times, BBC Culture, The Economist, 1843, AO Magazine, and The New Yorker. And we will find out what the localizer means in a conversation later. And also, Matt is an, the author of Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World, which insightfully analyzes how the unique Japanese mindset ended up producing unexpectedly globally influential products such as anime and games, along with the roots of these inventions. So today we'll discuss how Matt established his interesting career in Japan, his deep insights into how Japanese culture has unexpectedly influenced the world, uh, with plenty of fun examples such as Kombini, Depachika, Harokiri, and Anime, and what is underneath the Japanese food culture and much, much more. But before you start, Japanese is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Meets. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start our conversation with Matt Alt. Hello, Matt. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on. So this is exciting. I read your book and uh, I just really couldn't wait to discuss. And your thoughts are so deep and far beyond what people, <laughs> regular people can think of. So Deep thoughts about playful stuff. Yes. No, I've, uh, <laughs> thank you for reading. It's, uh, it's always fun to talk about the way that Japan, you know, made the world and, and me, you know, I was pulled in by Japanese things from a very young age. 
Okay, so let's find out how it good that happened. So, first of all, where are you from, and、uh, what did you eat when you grew up? Right. Well, I、uh, was raised in suburban Maryland,、uh, which is very near Washington D.C., the nation's capital, and I had a, a fairly standard American upbringing. You know,、uh, a lot of meat, not a lot of seafood. You know, barbecue,、uh, uh, that sort of thing. And、uh, it was fun, and I, I still have a, a lot of you know affinity for the American foods I grew up on. But it wasn't until I started studying Japanese and traveling to Japan when I got a little bit older that my palate really started expanding. Oh, right. So you really switched your gear <laughs> to something. Oh yeah, I know. I mean, raw fish, you know, sashimi or or fermented foods, other than perhaps cheese or beer, really weren't on the menu when I was growing up. And I don't think that was unique to my family. I think that's just the way the American palate was in the nineteen、uh, seventies and nineteen eighties when I was growing up.、Mm. Okay. So, so the when and why did you move to Japan and?、Um, I mean, if you can add, how did you establish your interesting career there? Well, you know, it's it's kind of funny. the 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 short answer of why I became interested in Japan was toys.、Uh, I loved Japanese toys, robot toys. When I was growing up,、uh, there was a kind of flood of all sorts of really fun products from Japan on the American and global marketplace. Things like the Transformers, those toys that would. Change from cars into robots, or the Nintendo Entertainment System, and it wasn't even limited to stuff for boys. There was Hello Kitty products, and all sorts of these really sort of uh, captivating, uh, uh, fun products from Japan that were in the American marketplace at the time. And I was very fortunate as a kid that in that my high school, which was a normal, average public high school in the American suburbs, had. One of the first, if not the first, Japanese language programs available at a public high school in the United States, and I really、uh, I took to that.、Uh, I, I, it was probably the only class I really studied for, or paid attention in, because <laughs> you know I wanted to understand and decipher all sorts of products like manga and anime that I knew about from my Japanese friends, but weren't available in America yet. Mm, interesting! Wow, that sounds、yes. like a destiny that you <laughs> you were born in. <laughs> maybe, maybe I was Japanese in a previous life. I don't know, but you know, there was nothing in my family's background to suggest any kind of interest in Japan. You know, my my father was a was a, an accountant, a CPA. My mother was a homemaker. My friends were all you know mainly、uh, Americans, and、uh, it was really sort of my own curiosity about this stuff that I was seeing: these robot toys, these cartoons. These video games that were, you know, I loved, but were so obviously made with different sensibilities than those we had in America,、mm. and so that really drove me to learn Japanese. I majored in it in college.、Um, after I, you know, returned to、uh, the Maryland area after graduating from school at the U- University of Wisconsin, I met who would become my wife,、uh, a Japanese woman who was a graduate student at、uh, in at the American University in Washington D.C. at the time. And it, through her, we first started translating Japanese video games、uh, back in the late '90s, and that sort of blossomed into a career,、uh, which took us to Japan、uh, early in the 2000s. And、uh, I've been living there ever since. Wow, that's like you really hit the real niche and timely. Yes. Also, 
You know, now anime and manga are huge around the world. Like the 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 top grossing movie at the box office in 2020 was an anime movie called Demon Slayer. So it's not really unique anymore to be fascinated by things from Japan. But I was, I guess, a little bit ahead of the curve and perhaps a little bit more obsessive <laughs> that I actually started learning Japanese and moved to Japan in search of uh, more you know, information about these things. Mm, right. Well, one thing I, you know, a lot of people, and relatively speaking, many people move to Japan, but uh, the way you analyze a society uh, is just astonishingly, you, you have a talent. So uh, I really want to know that, you know, according to your bio, you're a Tokyo-based writer and localizer. So I think that's yes. the keyword to summarize <laughs> your analytical <laughs> mindset. So uh, what do you mean by localizer? Good question. So localization is a field in the entertainment industry that involves, it's basically a fancy word for translation, but it's not just translation, which is why there's another word for it. Translation is, you know, transposing one language into another. But when you're translating entertainment products, the the end goal isn't just comprehensibility. It has to be fun too. It has to, it's entertainment. That's, that's the whole point. You know, if you need a PhD in East Asian studies to decipher a book or a video game, something has really gone wrong. So localization is the art, and it really is an art of making the translated uh, uh, product, whether it's a game or a comic book or a cartoon, feel almost like it was made for the audience that's consuming it in another language in the first place. Mm. Right. Yeah. So, but, you know, to be able to kind of, I think localizer means like to, you connect two locals, right? In Japan. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, it's, it's really bridging cultures. That's what it is. And, you know, through our work, you know, my wife, Hiroko Yoda, who I've also collaborated with on a lot of different book projects and things, she and I basically got a seat at the table uh, with all sorts of Japanese creators, video game, you know, programmers and producers and songwriters and comic book illustrators and publishers. And it was really a sort of unique window into Japan's pop cultural machine. And after many years of doing this, I got the idea of trying to explain what it was. I knew that Japan had this kind of unique pull on uh, the global imagination, you know, whether it's the way that Super Mario Brothers, the movie made a billion dollars at the box office you know, or whether Pokemon or all sorts of things are, you know, played with by children around the globe. I knew that it had this sort of cultural gravity, this pull, and I wanted to quantify it. And that's where I got the idea to write Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World. Mm, right. And you succeeded. In- <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Thank, you. Big Thank you. Thank <laughs> Yeah. So uh, we'll discuss the uh, book in a moment, but uh, I- I'm just, this is a huge question. What are the most fascinating aspects of Japanese culture that keep you there? Well, you know, Japan is often portrayed as this really rigid culture by people abroad. And it's true, you know, there's a lot more sort of protocols, I guess, in Japanese society than you see in a in American culture or many Western cultures. But there's also this irrepressible, almost incandescent sense of play, playfulness. And it manifests in all sorts of ways. Uh, in traditional culture, you see it in the ways that people uh, have transformed the art of poetry into the sort of single-serving verse of haiku, which is a very playful way of expressing yourself, even though it's it's also very beautiful. Or the way that Japanese toys uh, are some of its most visible exports all around the world. You know, if Japan was such a rigid 
culture? Why is it that we're so you know obsessed with the way that it plays? And uh, that really, to me, that dichotomy between Japan's traditional side uh, and its playful side is is really the thing I think that keeps me in Japan most of all. Mm, interesting. Yeah, this totally rigid, but to, that leaves the room to be totally playful. Uh, in yes, a way. Well, you know, maybe the fact that Japan is rigid in so many ways makes play a sort of escape in a, in, in a good way. You know, it's a sort of a safety valve. It's it's a way to express yourself outside of the the, the strictures, as it were, that are expected of you in in, in society. And uh, you know, I, I think that kind of dualism, that dual sided nature to you know Japanese culture, is something that attracts not only me but a lot of people to it. You know the 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 way in which craftspeople of all stripes, not just toy makers, but but also you know chefs, artisans, you know, uh, just dedicate themselves to their crafts. But yet within those crafts, you see a lot of innovation and creativity and playfulness. Um, you know, in the West, we associate rigidness with with non-creativeness. You know, we associate it with kind of blockheadedness. You know, if you're rigid, you aren't flexible. But Japan uh, and, and Japanese creators in particular seem to possess this unique balance between uh, uh, flexibility and and with 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 roots in tradition, uh, conservativeness, mm. you know, and 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 imagination all at the same time that I think is is one of the kind of driving factors with why people all around the world love things from Japan. Interesting. So there's a very thick, solid wall, and inside there are so many fun stuff going on, like fluffy, flowing, and sure, exactly. You know, right? Okay, Definitely. so uh, so we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll dive into deep uh, insight of maths uh, into unique Japanese culture. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and their rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs on HRN, Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Aki Katema. My guest today is Matt Alt, who is a Tokyo-based writer and localizer of Japanese entertainment products, including video games, toys, and manga. And Matt is also the author of Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World. So, yeah, let's just talk about this amazing book. So you published... Uh, this book, Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World in 2020. And yes. uh, it is very rare to come across such a really, really insightful, analytical. Thank you. Just analytical is the word. An easy-to-read book. That was an easy-to-read read book is another part. So, Right, sure, yeah. 
Well, I wanted to tell the stories of the people behind these sort of key products that I felt really transformed the global imagination. And they weren't just any products. Uh, they were more than just hits. There's a lot of hits out there, but I wanted to focus on what I called fantasy delivery devices. These are products that transformed us as we consumed them. You know, they changed the way that we thought about our own lives and the way that we thought about Japan, and they nourished our imaginations. You know, things like the karaoke machine, how it made us the star, the center of attention for the duration of a song, or the Game Boy, you know, which gave us these virtual worlds that were immersive and portable at the same time that we could kind of take gaming out into the real world things like anime and manga, new forms of expression, illustrated expression, all sorts of things like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe that through these products, Japan not only kind of thrived as a nation, it really transformed the global narrative. It transformed the way we all lived our lives. Mm, right. Interesting. So, um, okay, so one of the chapters – uh, as an example, in the book, it's about the concept of kawaii. And right. uh, I found it very interesting because it's such a unique concept. So what's the definition of kawaii? So kawaii is the Japanese uh, word for cute or adorable. Um, but it doesn't neatly overlap with English translations of the word. Cute in English comes from the word acute, which means cutting or biting or sharp. And so you actually have in, in English, if you get mad at somebody, you can say, don't be cute. And that's actually, you know, a kind of harsh thing to say to somebody. It means quit being such a smart aleck. But in Japan, kawaii is sort of an unalloyed, pure adorability and cuteness. And it is sort of the engine, I think you could say, that drives things like Hello Kitty or all sorts of mascot culture and the cute and cuddly side of Japanese pop culture. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Um, it's almost like uh, the comforting or healing. And Definitely. Regardless of your age or gender and this is throughout and but, you know, it's funny, right? Like, uh, mouseless Hello Kitty. By the way, Hello right. Kitty, there's no uh, movie of Hello Kitty because there's no mouse. She can't speak. Right, exactly. <laughs> she, can't, she can't speak. She can't speak. Yeah. Well, I think the biggest shock to me when I was researching the book is that Hello Kitty is not a cat. Uh, according to Sanrio, she's actually a little girl. She's an anthropomorphic little girl. And the diff you know, the difference of this is sort of lost, I think, on most foreign consumers. But officially, she's not a cat. Mm. So that's a representative of uh, the cat is like not aggressive at all, unless you. Yes. Attack. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's interesting because I, I think you'll agree, and and most people listening will agree. One of one of the things Japan is really known for is packaging things and and, and presenting things. You know, the the packages of Japanese products are often as fun as the products themselves. And you know, when when you go out and you eat Japanese food, it, the sushi chefs aren't just slapping food down on your plate. It's often very artfully arranged, especially if you talk about things like kaiseki. But even you know, street foods like ramen. You know, the way that you put the noodles in the bowl or the and the little kind of accoutrements, the little little side uh, bits and dishes in there. It's very artful. Kawaii is kind of the the packaging of that nurturing, uh, as you put it, or 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 adorable sort of emotion that we feel towards you know small things that need to be protected, whether they're babies or kittens, and you know through packaging that and 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 selling it. 
you know, Sanrio and other companies in Japan have been able to kind of provide us with a with emotion on demand, you know, because it's fun to kind of, you know, play with kitties and, and babies and things like that. It, it's, it's fun to uh, adore things, as it were. And I, I think that's the really kind of genius of kawaii culture. It's how it, it takes an emotion and, and makes a product out of it. Mm. Well, it's interesting, right? Because um, if you go to Japanese stationery shops, uh, Post-its have many printed versions with some healing, like comforting, oh, yeah. kawaii yeah. versions. And they're using offices. They're, they're not for kids. So right. I don't know. I think the Japanese people work too hard to try to <laughs> be, uh, you know, not to be kind of annoying existence. And they just right. punish themselves all the time. And then they go out of, at night, they get, get totally drunk, sleep on the trains. Like, right. To me, I, it makes sense because I grew up in Japan and I, that's sure. social pressure and uh, norm. Uh, which is nice, but this kind of like emoji is also, you know. Oh <laughs> yes, emoji very much so. That's like kawaii culture turned into like a language. Mm. And it's in global. So, oh, actually, this is a question. So, why now globally that kawaii concept is accepted? Uh, well, Fabio, I think there's a couple reasons for that. One of the biggest reasons is that now you know successive generations of foreigners have been raised on Japanese pop culture and Japanese entertainment. You know, Sanrio isn't anything new. You know, Nintendo isn't anything new. These these came to the West in the in the 70s and the and the and the 80s. You know, so for me, Gen X, I'm a, I'm a Gen generation X uh, a person. You know, I was raised on this stuff from childhood, but for subsequent generations, they were raised on it. You know, they've never known a period in their life when things from Japan weren't part of their, you know, their play and their fantasies. So the, the things that Japanese made for their own uh, uh, citizens, that Japanese creators made it for their own citizens, appeal abroad because we've all synchronized in a, in a, in a very real way from consuming all of the same stuff. And kawaii products, you know, whether they're Hello Kitty or, or whether they're, you know, Mario, who's actually a very kawaii kind of squash down design or, or all sorts of Japanese mascots and characters that, that appeal and, and nourish us. They succeed because they, they hit the same sweet spot, which is that, you know, life is hard. You just, sometimes you just want to cuddle, right? Mm. And, and kawaii products really hit that sweet spot. Right. Well, just to wrap up the concept of kawaii, you know, uh, we had a guest, uh, Mark Matsumoto and Maki Ogawa, episode 217, and uh, they are, uh, we discussed about kawaii bento boxes. Um, right, yes. That's, They're so great. Yeah, so how, how do you describe the existence of that obsessive bento boxes about the cuteness in Japan? Well, we talked about packaging, and I think Japan is very much about the presentation of things and the appearance of things. Mm. You know, whether it is the way that, for instance, kimono. You know, we think you know, Americans think of kimono as just as, as the form of dress, but as you as you probably know, being raised in Japan, you know, you 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 wear a different kimono depend, depending on the season. You know, you vary the patterns, you vary the materials, uh, even sometimes in traditional culture over the course of, of the same day, you would, you would change from one kimono to the other to match the occasion. And, you know, bento are very, of course, you know, convenient it, you, to carry food around in. But that presentation that, you know, having little different compartments and things like that, that's very playful. It's it's very cute, I think, mm. and you know the designs that are on the boxes and and the, the specific shapes of the boxes. I, I think you know in the West really values thinking outside the box, 
But bento are a very literal example of thinking inside the box. And I think <laughs> Japan excels at that. Mm, right. Well, actually, that's interesting because uh, that underlining another value system is sure. the gift-minded uh, <laughs> society, right? Because uh, everybody, I think whenever you go visit office or friends or whatever, people tend to bring something to give, like a package of little well-designed box of sweets, chocolates, yes. uh, Japanese crackers, and that's the mindset. So is there something nice? You give it to someone instead of to yourself, and yes. that's the crazy mindset of Japanese society. Well, the, I, I think you can argue, and, and, and I'm not the first one to say this, uh, like Sanrio succeeded. Sanrio, who created uh, Hello Kitty and so many other cute mascots, their, their real innovation wasn't the characters. It was taking this gift-giving culture that was so ubiquitous in Japan, that's so ubiquitous that people didn't even think about it. It's just part of culture. But it was mainly something adults did. Like you said, you go visit somebody's house, you bring a little bit of food or something, or you go visit an office, you know, you, you bring some kind of gift for the people there, whatever it is. They took those gift exchanges that were meant for adults and aged them down uh, for children. Uh, and that's how Sanrio's products were originally marketed, as a small gift, big smile. So that gift-giving culture, too, I think, you're, you're really hitting on something. It's key to a lot of, of uh, Japanese pop culture and traditional culture. Mm, right. So speaking of uh, gift-giving, so depachika is another unique concept yes. in Japan, right? So uh, what is depachika and uh, what is it? Why is it so prevalent in Japan? Well, Depa Chika stands for uh, Depato no Chika, which means the, 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 the series of stores that are in the basement of a department store. And now it's expanded beyond just department stores. There's, there's uh, Ekichika, which are you know, sort of shops that are beneath the tracks of train stations or in the basement of train stations. And they usually take the form of a lot of different I don't want to say stalls has a kind of low rent meaning to it, but these are actually quite um, exquisitely uh, arranged and presented sales spaces where many different types of craftspeople and, and food companies and all sorts of people set up tiny shops and you can kind of walk through them. And for instance, pick out an entire meal for yourself from, from different places. This one specializes in noodles. This one specializes in cookies noodles and cookies. It sounds like a great dinner or <laughs> gifts of all sorts, you know, and they're packaged really exquisitely as well. They come in really nice boxes. So you can buy, you go to a Depa Chica traditionally to buy things uh, that you might be giving to someone else when you visit their house, like a really nicely packaged box of mm. sambay crackers or, or cakes or something like that. So it's, Again, we're, we're hitting on this idea of packaging and thinking inside the box. It's this space which is designed to provide products that you use to communicate uh, and and build relationships with people around you, and they're they're really fun to visit. I you know people think about you know when you think about tourism in Japan, they think about visiting temples or like you know going to the Ginza, but Depachika these these shopping arcades beneath uh, stores, beneath uh, department stores and, and, and uh, train stations, I think they're every bit as amazing as these, these major tourist areas. Mm, right. And it's, it's kind of destination, right? Because it's so competitive. The department, you know, so businesses come so competitive. People oh, really yeah. make it like a special shrine of food or like 
forget about Definitely. the Harrods in London. It's like Japanese departure guys really beating everybody because they're so committed to provide this special wonder land. Well, it's, it's, yeah, so many, so many little exquisite delicacies from various places and like various companies. It's, it's a place, Depachika are places where you can sample a huge variety of Japanese foods and, and other products too, really. But, you know, you're right. They're very competitive spaces. You know, the rents are very high because there's, these are in high traffic areas, you know, department stores, these are places where people go, train stations, these are places where people go on a daily basis. So, you know, it's a kind of what you might say a target rich environment for companies wanting to target customers. And the people who go to these places tend to have money. You know, if you go to a department store, you don't you don't go there unless you have the money to to shop and buy stuff. So it, it's really a, a a sort of not only is it an interesting marketplace, but it's also a sort of forge for innovation. Because you can't just keep selling the same thing all the time. You have to constantly win over customers who are walking by quickly with uh, new sorts of packaging and new sorts of foods and new sorts of products. Mm, right. And also, uh, they tend to feature the most traditional, um, you know, sweet makers and generations and all those like history and modern um, mixed in in one space. And then of course- Yeah, there's a lot of fusion going on there where you know, you'll have senbei crackers, which have been around in Japan for what, centuries, but they'll be presented in different ways or made with different ingredients to kind of catch the attention uh, of customers and things like that. Mm. And I think that's one of the things I love most about Depachika. They're always changing. Uh, the Depachika near my house, it seems like every six months, there's new shops in there selling new stuff. And sometimes that's great because you, you find new things, but sometimes I'm kind of disappointed because I, I started really liking some Something, and then the store is switched to something else. But <laughs> that's one of the, the big definitions, I think, to me of the Japanese marketplace. It's a lot more dynamic than the American one. Mm, right. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, it's not, we're not talking about department stores like Macy's or Bloomingdale. So it's something else. This and the concept of department stores in Japan tend to be a little more. I don't know, like dynamic or just, just because well, definitely. of definitely. Right? I mean, the oldest department store chains in the world are Japanese. You know, things like, you know, Matsuya or 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 Mitsukoshi or, you know, they have they have centuries of of history in Japan. Uh, mm. so the idea of department stores as being purveyors of the best of the best is is really an interesting uh, aspect of Japanese society that was kind of ahead of the curve in consumer society as a whole. Mm. Uh, our department stores kind of follow their lead in a lot of ways, even though there wasn't really uh, a great deal of, of of communication between Japan and the West, you know, hundreds of years ago. Mm. Right. So, um, yeah. Well, let's talk about something completely different because we have so many to cover. Sure, yes. <laughs> um, so you, I know you have an interesting observation about MSG. So what is oh. MSG and why is it so relevant in the Japanese cultural context? Well, you know, MSG is, is monosodium glutamate and it is a, uh, it's found naturally in a lot of foods, but it's a flavor enhancer. Um, it is what gives things like tomatoes and cheese their kind of, I don't know, satisfying uh, taste. The reason that MSG is so associated with yeah, – and actually, I don't think MSG is associated with Japan or it wasn't until recently. For a long time, it was associated with Chinese food. Um, it was associated with, with Asian cooking outside of Japan. But it was actually uh, – I don't want to say invented because it, it, it exists. It's a natural compound. But it was first isolated in Japan in the early 1900s by a scientist named Kikunae Ikeda. And he was 
drinking miso soup one day when he realized that the broth was more flavorful than usual. And he asked his wife who had made it for him why. And she said that she had put konbu, seaweed, konbu dashi, which if you've ever cooked Japanese food or, or you know, if you're just simply a fan of it, you'll know konbu dashi, seaweed uh, 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 broth um, is key to a lot of Japanese uh, uh, flavors. And he decided to start investigating this. And he's a scientist, he's a chemist. And by 1907, he had actually isolated the compound that he believed gave kombu seaweed its flavor. Uh, not only its flavor, but its, its flavor-boosting powers. And uh, he named it uh, umami, which is a word that we all know today. But at the time, it was just a Japanese, you know, it was only used in Japan. And he used this he to start a, a business empire, which is he founded a company called Ajinomoto, and they began selling uh, this MSG as umami in Japan. And uh, this is in the early 1900s, and that's really the start of it. That's where MSG as we know it came from, even though it had been in foods, all sorts of foods since time immemorial. Mm, right. So, and then... Um you know, it's kind of Ajinomoto made, made a lot of products. I mean, still, he's making a lot of it. Oh, yeah, it's still a big company product, today, right? yeah. And the people, instead of Parmigiano, uh, Leggiano cheese, right. uh, it's, a, it's kind of powdered form. And when I grew up, it's always with my table. And uh, I didn't even question, is it good or bad? The people just like, you know, Chinese syndrome, or like you get a headache, which the, I think proved to be not true. Yeah. But um, so what's the relevance in Japanese culture well, uh, MSG is really the basis for what you might call big food, you know, the industrialization of food. Um, it was quickly, you know, it was, it was used in Japan to create it, – it, this emerged in Japan at a time when Japan was trying to, to modernize. They were trying to play catch up with the West um, and because they felt as a nation, Japan had only opened its ports to the world about 50 years earlier. And so there was this great drive to, to, to modernize and, and compete with the West. And food was part of that. Uh, the, you know, MSG was used in the manufacturing of all sorts of foods. And the West noticed this. Uh, Campbell's Soup was one of the first foreign uh, companies to express an interest in Ikeda's uh, invention. And they purchased it for use in their canned soups in the 1920s and 1930s. And then the U.S. Army uh, also showed a great interest in it because, you know, they could use it to make the rations, which, you know, Army rations aren't exactly the greatest tasting food, taste better. Um, and they incorporated MSG into their foods. And, you know, MSG, it's impossible really to imagine, you know, the modern you know, fast food, you know, snack food industry without it, potato chips, you know, instant noodles, all sorts of things that we associate with, you know, fun foods. They're really, MSG plays a key role in them. And that all came out of Ikeda's uh, experiments and his company that he founded. Mm, right. Interesting. So the, the word umami, uh, umai is an adjective. It's kind of visceral right. expression, casual expression. Of, oh, this is so good. This tastes so good. And uh, umami now becoming like a culinary term in a fancy culinary oh, sure. <laughs> world. But uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, the umami can enhance saltiness and sweetness and reduces or rounds out bitterness and sourness of uh, other 
out of food, out of tasting food. That means yes. that you get more satisfied. So it's in a way it's healthier. I, I, I don't want to get into that MSG is uh, healthy right. now, but this is dominant. And I, I think globally, Hello Kitty is dominant in the world. Yes. And this is also. Well, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to me how the script has flipped because, you know, when I was growing up, 70s, 80s, MSG was associated with. Uh, uh, Chinese food, and it was really unfairly maligned. And I think there's actually quite a bit of prejudice, you know, and 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 even outright racism in the way that MSG was sort of scapegoated and 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 used to scapegoat Chinese cuisine. Um, and that changed, I think, over the 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 course of the '90s and and 2000s. And like, it's it's interesting because there's really no difference between MSG and umami. Uh, you know, it, it's the same thing. Umami is the, the so-called fifth taste, you know, in addition to sweet, sour, salty, and bitter. Umami is that kind of savory uh, uh, flavor component on that, on that gustatory spectrum, if you want to call it that. Mm. And now it's sort of been rebranded. And I think it's telling that it's been rebranded with the Japanese word because it's Japan is now seen as a forge of fantasies. It's seen as a place that that has solutions for modern living in a lot of ways. So by taking MSG, monosodium glutamate, which sounds a little scary, honestly, you know, it sounds like a chemical compound, and calling it umami, it's it's probably one of the most successful rebranding campaigns to have happened in the last twenty to thirty years. I think. Mm, interesting, and also I uh, a while ago I spoke to a person from Ajinomoto, and she said. Um, the all the ingredients are natural and it's not right. chemically modified or anything. So it may not uh, be as, as ideal as natural, but I don't know. It's a subject of, you know, because right. like David Chang and famous chefs approved, um, MSG and they use sometimes in their food. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, David Chang, he named Momofuku is named after Momofuku Ando, who is the gentleman who came up with instant noodles. You know, which is, you know, <laughs> cup of noodles is not necessarily associated with healthy cuisine, but we love it. And that's the interesting thing to me, right? Like my, my book focused on fantasy delivery devices like, you know, the Nintendo Entertainment System or the karaoke machine, things like that. But MSG is a sort of fantasy delivery device for the senses. It's a fantasy delivery device for the palate. And I think the, 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 our fascination with it and our love for it is very similar to the love that we feel for things like, you know, Nintendo games or, you know, the Tamagotchi or, you know, Pokemon critters. Mm, right. Okay. So, and here's another question I can't help asking you because it's so relevant sure. to me. So, you know, Japanese convenience stores, it's often oh, discussed yeah. as the one of the most unique existence in the Japanese culture. So, how is a Japanese convenience store different from the original American 7-Eleven style outlets. When it's funny, this reminds me, Anthony Bourdain was, you know, he famously said that when he got off the plane in Japan, uh, he would head right for the convenience store and get one of those, you know, those triangular uh, scrambled egg sandwiches. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, I love those too. I think they're great. Um Again, you know, we're, we're touching on packaging. I think one of the great things, and I don't mean packaging of the products necessarily, but the way the Japanese convenience store is oriented, I think there's a lot of overlap with the Depachika, actually. You have, it's a very dynamic environment where new products are constantly, constantly being uh, debuted. The, it's a sort of survival of the fittest, you know, only the ones that sell are, are continued. And actually, sometimes even the ones that sell are discontinued deliberately to kind of stoke uh, interest in them for coming back. 
my my wife who is japanese has commented to me on numerous occasions how when we go to an american supermarket or an american convenience store how all the logos and the products are really the same from year to year and even decade to decade like you know the coca-cola package hasn't really changed you know the the cereal boxes and 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 the way like quaker oats and like all of these things they look pretty much exactly the same as they did when she first started visiting america in the 1980s but you go into a convenience store month to month, it's almost like a different place. <laughs> it's like all the products, the products, the same genres of things are there, you know, the, the drinks and the, you know, the instant foods and the ice creams and stuff. But the, the packaging, the, there's a lot of seasonality to it, I think. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, totally. And I heard, maybe it's the wrong number, but 150,000 items go through one convenience store oh. throughout a year. That's like ridiculous. I don't know how they manage there. Oh, it makes sense. <laughs> you know, when you go when you go into a convenience store, it looks like a really fun place, and it is. But actually, behind the scenes, it's really survival of the fittest. It's brutal for the people who are vying to get their product onto those shelves because the shelf space is limited, and only the stuff that sells well is is kept. So, but you know, I I think the the big difference between to get back to your original question five minutes ago, <laughs> the original the the thing that distinguishes uh, uh, convenience stores in Japan from those abroad to me is that Japanese convenience stores aren't necessarily associated purely with convenience. There's actually a lot of little luxuries happening there. Mm. Uh, they aren't seen as places to just quickly get in and out of. There are places where you can kind of spend time. They're bright. They're clean. You know, these aren't words that I associate with the 7-Elevens and, and, and convenience stores of my youth, mm. um, you know, which tended to be kind of darker places where you go in to get a Slurpee and, you know, maybe play a video game and, and you know, eat some meat snacks, you know, before, you, before your mom yelled for you to come back home again for dinner. Um, in, in Japan, they're, they're actually, you know, I, I, I don't mean to, to exaggerate, but they're almost more meditative spaces. Mm. You know, you go in and, of course, you, you go in when you need something. But there are also places where you can go in to find things that you want too, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. And also um, it's functional. You can pay your bill or, you know, you can, you can buy your stationery, you can, you know, your socks or some, you know. Quick, quick oh, definitely. Purchase. Yes. Socks. Right. There, there was a big boom for socks from, was it, was it, it wasn't Lawson, who was Family Mart. Family Mart introduced like a, a, a bunch of different like kind of clothing lines, the cheap clothing lines that people were for a while there during pandemic really uh, buying. But there, there are numerous convenience store chains in Japan, each with its own kind of subtle different take on the, on, on the way that it's done. 7-Eleven, which is actually a Japanese company. Uh, it, was, it was American, but it's been purchased by – it was purchased by uh, the Japanese, you know, kind of mm. uh, you know, subsidiary took over. In the 1990s, I believe it was. There's Lawson's, which is also used to be an American chain until the Japanese bought it out. And I don't think there's any Lawson's in the United States anymore. And there's Family Mart. And there's a bunch of other ones that are even smaller than that, some kind of local regional ones. But there are so many of them. They're they're on virtually every street corner in in urban areas. And you can find them in some really far-flung places as well. Mm. Uh, It's almost like like a New York City deli. Like, this is my yeah, bodega. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. You know, if you want something late at night, you know, you want like a, you know, a Nikuman, like a meat bun, or, you know, <laughs> you want some yakitori. 
And but you know, there's also increasingly I have I've been really impressed. There's a lot of healthy sort of 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 dishes available at Japanese convenience stores now, like salads or like you know you know natto maki, you know the fermented beans and things like that. And mm. I never associate American convenience store chains with healthy food. Never <laughs> like fun food. Maybe. Healthy? Not really. In Japan, you can actually build a pretty healthy meal out of the stuff you get at a convenience store these days. Right, and there's like a Lawson has natural Lawson and they like yes. a healthier version and sustainable Is that version. Organic? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a well. I think also you know a uh, little luxury you mentioned about um, this convenience store. It's a good in common with Depachika, right? Because yes. it's a high quality thing. You don't have to break your bank account, but still little thing and then they keep um people keep buying something little almost every day and then the culture of convenience stores thriving and the service is amazing and they purchase a bento box that they ask you would you like to warm it up there's a right, microwave yes. oven in your bag and this is it's it's a first class um service. well there's like hospitality there too you know what i mean <laughs> that kind of like they're much more welcoming i think than the uh than the western uh, convenience stores where I've been into where the whole point is to get in and out as quickly as possible. I need I need a quart of milk, you know, the baby's <laughs> crying. I need to get in and out. But, you know, convenience stores are a sort of fantasy space, I think, in Japan in a lot of ways. Of course, they're, they're, they're there to vend products to people who need them first and foremost. But it, the culture has kind of evolved to the point where it, it's really a, a culture unto itself. Uh, you know, there's even a best-selling book, Convenience Store Woman, by Sayaka Murata, which I really recommend to anybody who's interested in this, because she 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 turns the convenience store into 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 high literature. Uh, it, it's a really great story about a woman who's almost synchronized with the convenience store that she works at. Mm. Okay, so um, so now we discuss many concepts, unique concepts of Japanese culture, uh, like kawaii to debashikaru computers. But how specific are they? Uh, meaning Japanese specific versus can be universal. Like it's a big sure. question. What do you think? Well, you know, there's a lot of unique aspects of Japanese culture, of course, cult- that are that are that are very distinct or peculiar to Japan. But you know, the the things that Japan makes. They satisfy fundamental human needs, and that's why I think they appeal so broadly outside of the world. They're made for Japanese people, and they're made for Japanese sensibilities. But since they answer questions that are kind of inherent to all of us, you know, they answer needs, whether it's a need for escape or like a need to to kind of, you know, make ourselves feel like we're giving ourselves a little luxury or whatever, uh, that appeals very broadly. And like I was saying earlier, because we've been consuming things from Japan for so long, it's not really exotic anymore. You know, when you say Japan to somebody these days, it's not, you know, it's it, it's not this exotic land from far away that it was to somebody, say, in the 1950s or 1960s when it was very difficult to get over there and there wasn't a lot of you know, communication between the two countries. Mm-hmm. Now Japan, you know, and partially thanks to the internet, partially thanks to all the fantasy delivery devices we've consumed and the Japanese food that we're eating, it's actually kind of a very close presence to us in a lot of ways. And I think that's why we love things from Japan. They're kind of a little bit different but that gives them an authenticity too that is different from things that are made specifically for us. Mm, right, interesting. I mean, to me personally, the reason I do these shows and all those things in Japanese is I think there is some, uh, you know, like, for example, kawaii is healing. We all sure. have 
a lot of stress, pain, you know, crazy stuff going on in our lives. But Japanese culture has that element. You get a little, you know, stressed out. Yeah. And then some elements, people take care of each other because everybody does. That's the mindset of Japan. And whenever we go to Japan, I feel like, ooh, I'm taken care of. Right. That's the feeling. Yeah. Hospitality. Right. And uh, not in the sense that, you know, commercial uh, sense of hospitality, but because everybody's suffering, everybody's taking care of each other. It's a small island country for centuries. And uh, we learned as Japanese people, including you, (laughs) I I think (laughs) we have to be responsible to act as a good citizen because I don't know probably other religious elements and coming in, but I think Japanese food is a very interesting window to feel that hospitality and you care about Definitely. Yeah, like you know, kaiseki cuisine or even convenience store bento or sandwiches. Somebody paid so much attention to think of who's gonna eat it. And then right. the perfect texture and it's a whole kind of efforts. Um, group efforts to make the whole society a happy place to by providing good um, products like cars, anime, everything. I think that, that deep mindset people even don't think about, but that's something I think people can steal from Japan because right. everybody's suffering. <laughs> inspired by, let's say, let's say, be inspired. But yes, right. yes. yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because now Japan, it's, you know, to my grandparents, Japan was what? It was an enemy. We were fighting each other during World War II. (laughs) To my parents' generation, you know, the boomers, Japan was this kind of economic rival. But, you know, we don't see Japan that way anymore. Mm. Uh, Japan is, is this very friendly sort of presence. And I think a lot of that is due to the bridges that it built through its fun products, whether they're toys or, or whether it's food. But, you know, Japan is also a sort of petri dish, I think. It's a very small nation. It's an island nation. People, it urbanized very quickly, much more quickly, I think, than the West, especially after World War II when the cities were rebuilt. And it experienced a big economic crash in the 1990s before we had the big Lehman shock of 2008 that sort of threw us into turmoil. So because Japan has been through this boom and bust cycle uh, uh, as an advanced nation a little bit ahead of the curve of the West, the products that it makes often answer questions that we hadn't thought to answer yet. You know, whether it's, you know, portable video gaming through the Game Boy or whether it's Marie Kondo you know, offering us this kind of Japanese spiritual approach to organizing our sock drawers. Um, Japan has become this sort of, you know, answerer of problems inherent to advanced societies around the world. Mm, right. Yeah, that's interesting. You're right. Uh, things changed. And uh, I have to switch my uh, kind of assumption uh, looking about, like, looking at all those different things I was thinking about, thanks to you. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, but it's just, you know, we used to see, I think we, meaning the West, used to kind of exoticize and orientalize and, and, and see Japan as this exotic place. And it's really not. Uh, I, I think the things that Japan makes are, are, are things that, that can appeal very broadly outside of Japan, like you said, to inspire. Uh, whether it's you know a kind of worldview, whether it's something specific like craftspersonship, or whether it's you know the way that you know Japanese unwind and play, you know there's a lot of uh, affinity I think there uh, yeah. between uh, Western people in Japan. Right. Um, so you know you've been in Japan for a long time as an insider. So how do you see um, the change in Japan? Is there anything changing or not changing, or how do you observe things happening in Japan? 
Well, I'll tell you one thing I'm noticing is just how many foreign people are coming to visit Japan these days. Um, you know, with the, the the end, you know, quote unquote, of pandemic and the opening of Japan's borders again, uh, it just the number of people coming is on a daily basis is just it's shocking to me. More tourists now than there were even before pandemic happened, and they're often families now. It's not like young people looking to party. It's it's families coming out. The you know the parents love stuff from Japan that they grew up on, and the little kids are you know obsessed with Pokemon and 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 you know things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting to see these multi generational visitors to Japan. It used to be an exotic place. Now it's just it's a place everybody seems to want to go. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I think uh, the the kids who grew up under parents they who started eating sushi now are the sushi consumers, and now their kids are going to Japan. And right, so yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. I actually met a family of uh, refugees from the Ukraine a couple of weeks ago, yeah. and. They're, the young son – and Japan has been you know, offering asylum, I think, to, to people who are trying to escape the, the kind of really sad things that are happening over there. But I was struck by the fact the young boy, he must have been about six or seven years old, was wearing a Pokemon shirt. And it was just – he loved Pokemon and he had grown up on it in the Ukraine. Uh, this wasn't something that he learned about coming to Japan. So for him, I think you know, this is a kid who's been through a lot of really bad stuff. And it really, I th- it made me kind of happy. I think that the fact that he had come to the place where the Pokemon were from gave him, you know, some kind of comfort. Mm-hmm. And you know, and and you were you were touching on this earlier the 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 power that Japanese characters and and many things from Japan have to, to comfort us in in times of, you know, trouble and crisis. Mm-hmm. And that was a very sort of visceral, uh, uh, you know, a, a very a very you know close to the headline sort of example of that. Right. I got uh, goosebumps. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's, it was it was me too when it happened. It was really nice right. to uh, see this kid kind of being able to thrive in this in this situation because he wasn't able to back in his homeland. I hope he can return sometime soon. But Japan is taking care of him and his family right now. Mm, right. So, piece of Japan is going to stay him, and then that's some of our healing elements. He's going to probably spread to the world. Yes. Take take those Pokemon cards back to the outside <laughs> world. <laughs> right. So, um, but I, don't know, I have to ask you this question. Where do you think your analytical and inquisitive mind come from? Well, you know, I was never a great student or anything like that. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't like, I, I, I don't know. I just, I've always been, whenever something has interested me, I've always wondered where did it come from and, and how did it get here? You know, I, I've, I've never been just kind of a quiet, passive consumer of things. And I don't think I'm particularly unique in this. You know, I, I know, you know, I've had friends who've been obsessed with, you know, record collecting or whatever. They want to know who recorded this, who found it. You know, what was unique for me is that it was basically about Japanese toys. I was less interested in the TV show than who was the engineer who came up with this idea of the car that transformed into a robot or something like that. Mm. I don't know what it is, but I just always wanted to swim upstream, so to speak, and, and, and find the kind of you know, answers to the, the question of who made this and why, you know, and uh, Japan is a, a place that is, is, has a great respect for creators of all stripes. And so when I first got there and, and started asking these questions, people didn't look at me like I was crazy. I mean, they might've thought I was crazy for being fascinated by the transformers instead of some aspect of, you know, uh, a, a Japanese tradition, but they got it. And uh, I, over the years, I have been able to meet a lot of my heroes, so to speak, the designers, 
uh, of the things that so captivated me when I was a kid. And that's a really satisfying, you know, and, and fun thing to do. And I, I wanted just to share it with people. You know, it's always when you have experience like that, it's great, but you want to share it with people. Because I know I'm not the only person who finds, you know, things from Japan uh, to be so fun and, 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 and captivating and fascinating. So that's where, you know, I, I got the idea to start putting this down on paper and, and writing pure invention. And, uh, and I do a newsletter now, uh, a, a weekly newsletter, pure invention, uh, look, look for it online and, uh, please subscribe where I explore kind of more, uh, up to the minute manifestations of, of Japanese pop culture. Mm. Well, I, I meet, I've interviewed many people in the past, but the, your, way to create your own framework that makes sense to everybody that's a talent so hope <laughs> oh, well, thank keep... you thank you i just yeah. i just love sharing this stuff with everybody it just it, it makes me happy and I, and I like being happy with other people of course mm. so it's just it's it's great you know i really appreciate you having me on right so uh so specifically your website uh is www.matalt.com m-a-t-t-l-t.com that's where you can that you can find me there or you can find pureinventionbook.com is okay. where uh, you can read more about my book. And also there's a link to my newsletter there too. Mm, awesome. So I hope you can, uh, we can continue our conversation from different aspects of Japanese culture. Oh, absolutely. Right. All right. So, uh, yeah. Uh, do you have a social media you want to promote or anything? Oh sure, I yeah. I mean, you know, by all means, like I was saying, my my newsletter, pure uh, blog dot com. I'm on Twitter, uh, Matt underscore uh, Alt. I'm on I'm on everywhere. I'm on Instagram, Alt Matt Alt. You know, find me on Facebook. Uh, I'm I'm everywhere you are. <laughs> okay. Please find me. Right. All right. So yeah, I like your newsletter too. So. Oh, thank you. Right. Thank you. All right. So uh, the listeners, uh, it's Matt Alt. His book. Um, it's just amazing. So I really enjoy reading it. So pure invention. Uh, that's how Japan made the modern world. So, well, thanks again for joining us today, Matt. And uh, hopefully we'll see you soon here. That'd be great. Right. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show uh, or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japaneats at heritageradionetwork.org or at kikwatema.com. Japaneats is a weekly program and is always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as at iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify as a podcast. An engineer is Amin Svenjan, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Needs is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.